Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning, this is Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. I'm very pleased to say my guest today is Bernie De La Cogna, the founder of luxury interior textiles business De La Cogna. To make a living, as she said after a separation, Bernie helped a friend who owned an Indian carpet business. Inspired by the traditional weaving techniques in India, she started ordering small quantities of fabric from the subcontinent and began an interiors business with a high-end collection, a very small one to start with. Bernie began De La Cogna in 1992 with an ethos of doing things differently. When she launched, no one in the industry was using plain textured linen or considering the handle of the fabric. I'm going to learn a lot today. It's very important, she says, for us to offer the highest quality products that are unique in touch and feel. This is what sets De La Cogna apart. Some fabrics are created using modern techniques and others are the result of rethinking ancient techniques. Having grown up in South Africa, where poverty is rampant and recycling is commonplace, Bernie's put sustainability and the circular economy at the heart of De La Cogna. And also, she says, it's important to me to support exceptionally talented craftspeople and artisans from South Africa, as well as showing to the world at large the wonderful talent that exists there. We'll be talking to Bernie in a few minutes about all of this, about reimagining the shopper experience and her plans to retail De La Cogna accessories on large retail platforms. We've also got brilliant music in the next hour from, amongst others, Kurt Elling, Ray Charles and Melody Gardot. That is Jazz Shapers Today. Here's Ramsey Lewis Trio with Do What You Want. That was Do What You Want, and funky it was too. Ramsey Lewis Trio here on Jazz Shapers. Very pleased to say, as I said earlier, my business shape today is Bernie de la Cogna, Spanish surname. I've now got the pronunciation right. She's not going to give me death stares from over there. Hello. <laughs> Hi. How are you? Good, thank you. You set up this amazing business in 1992. Tell me about your love affair with fabrics and the like and the very beginning. Go back, if you will, okay. just a few years to where this thing came about and why we're talking here and why it's such a well-kept secret. I love this program because I get to meet people like you who've got <laughs> these big businesses who are global in their own way and who do fascinating things and I haven't necessarily come across them myself. Okay. You mentioned the Spanish name. My father certainly came from Spain and his whole family came from Spain, but I'm born and bred in South Africa. I've been very lucky to live in this country for nearly 30 years, but my heart is still African. So I started the company by going with a South African friend to India and he had a carpet company. And the carpet company is really what got me interested or what allowed me to see how incredibly creative they were in India and also introduced me to these extraordinary textiles that they produce in India, the extraordinary silks, the colors, the craft, that's what really started what I do because I saw it, knew that I was coming back to the UK where I needed to support myself, very motivating. Um, and so I thought I could start a business. This could, I could really start a business in this country and produce something extremely beautiful, which is what I always wanted to do. Mm. 
Uh, and those very first products, what were they? So that that's a funny story because I wanted to produce linen because prior to coming to live in England, I'd lived briefly in Belgium and I'd seen this incredible cloth, which was a linen cloth. And I always thought of linen growing up as table linen or bed linen, but actually linen on its own as a fiber, as a product is quite extraordinary. It takes color really beautifully. It's an incredible fiber. Up until then, people had only used linen as a printed linen. I think we can all remember our grandparents having Sanderson's linen or, or Liberty's linen, which had big flowers printed on it. But I thought, if I get hold of this fiber, I can actually turn it into something unique and really beautiful because I've seen the properties it has. And um, so I started a by weaving it in the middle of India. And that's a long story too, because in those days you had to use yellow pages. There was no Wi-Fi. So it was really pounding the streets in Bombay and um, finding somebody who would take me seriously to allow me to go and watch the weaving. So taking a train for 24 hours, I arrived at this little village and that's where I learned how to weave. That was the beginning of it. But very quickly, I realized that I couldn't control the quality. In those days, the quality coming out of India weaving linen was not what I wanted. I wanted to produce a luxurious product. So very quickly, I realized I'd have to move all the production out of India and harness the skills of extraordinary craftspeople in Europe. And that way I could control it and benefit by their history of weaving. Tell me how you, you talked about control and quality. So those early years, how did you then establish control and therefore quality? And, and, and then tell me about the evolution, because i just looking around and doing my normal research. My wife and I were looking because we're doing a house up in a minute. I'm going, oh, she's going, oh, those are nice cushions. Look at the material. I'm going, okay, we better come off this website quite fast. I'm in trouble. But, but tell me about that quality piece that you developed at the beginning. Well, I think... I was very lucky because when I started producing these very sort of soft tactile linen textiles in India, I then brought them back to the UK and very quickly, and obviously I brought these pieces of fabric back and it's quite difficult to walk around London and, um, you know, have a few rolls of fabric over your shoulder. So I had to turn those pieces of fabric into a finished product. So I got people to help me to make cushions out of this fabric. And I sold it and I took those cushions to designers in London who immediately latched onto them. So that was really lucky. Then I started to produce more and more fabric in India still, but I realized that they couldn't do the quality that I wanted or I couldn't control the quality from where I was in London. So I moved that all to Europe, which was a challenge in itself because what I'd managed to achieve in India was all handmade and hand-produced and hand-softened, which so I ended up with a really unique product. Now I had to replicate that in Europe, and that was more difficult because I was using technology, and I had to try to get them to use a lot of handwork, which, of course, is, just doesn't work in Europe. It's just not cost-effective. Mm. So I had to come up with ideas like stonewashing, and that's where I first started in Europe. So stonewashing, we started with stonewashed jeans, and She's looking at my jeans. They are indeed stonewashed. <laughs> in those days, stonewashed jeans was all the fashion. A long time ago, I'm aging myself. It was all the fashion. And I thought 
because I've got this soft floppy linen, which I'd achieved in India, and I was now selling, and I had a demand for, if I went to somebody who created stonewashed jeans, I could give them the linen produced on these really, really modern looms. They could put it into the machines with a whole lot of stones, which is how they stonewash, and we could achieve a similar product. So after a long time and lots of talking people into doing things and trial and error, we achieved a similar product. And that's how I started producing in Europe. And it's, it sounds like to me you're super inventive. I mean, this is just stuff that you kind of made up. You had a hunch, you tried things, it's iterative. It, in terms of the people around you that helped you develop these ideas, how did you find people that to get into the business? I don't mean people you work with outside of the partners and stuff, mm. but actually in, how did you find those people? How did you... What was your criteria for identifying fabulous people? Well, I think the first thing was I started on my own and I was totally on my own quite a long time. But I think the really important bit was that I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about business and I also didn't know anything about weaving or the industry or the country. And believe it or not, that is quite liberating because as soon as you really understand your craft or your business, you know what the limitations are. I didn't know what the limitations were, so I didn't have any. So I kept asking questions. And by asking questions, I found inventive ways of achieving things like the stonewashing. Stay with me for much more from my guest, a Bernie Lelaconia. She's coming up back in a couple of minutes. But first, we're going to hear from our programme partners at Mishkondorea some words of advice for your business. Hi, I'm Daniel Avener, CEO of MDR Brand Management, the fourth non-legal business entity that's been set up as part of the Mishkondorea Group. And we help companies build commercial value for their brands and intellectual property across the business world. Today, there have never been more complex challenges for companies in the global marketplace, especially when brand owners are looking to grow both in the UK and internationally. One area that should be considered when looking to expand your brand is brand licensing and franchise development. By harnessing the equity and the awareness of a brand, licensing and franchise development can often be an extremely cost-effective, low-risk strategy, one that can allow you to expand into new geographies and global markets, launch new product categories. It can be an effective marketing tool to create new connections and consumer messaging bring a brand to life through branded consumer experiences and also protect a brand owner's trademark. MDR Brand Management can assist in all aspects of the licensing and franchise process to ensure that you generate significant and long-term revenue streams for many years ahead. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM In partnership with Mishkondorea It's business, but it's personal. There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed to hear this very programme again with Bernie Della Cogna. I'm getting the hang of it now. You can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you can hear many of the recent programmes or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, you can enjoy the full archive. But back to today, it's Bernie. She's in the hot seat. Um, uh, it's getting warm in here, actually. Uh, she's the founder of luxury textiles <laughs> in this uh, business, Della Cogna. Um, and we've been talking about you working on your own. It sounds like that was a, a period of time. The, the first few hires, though, Bernie, however many years it was into the business, did you succeed immediately in finding the right people to help you build this business? Mm. You know, when I first started, I employed two people, and they really, really helped me shape the business. Um, it, to me, it's all about attitude. 
It's about the attitude of people as to whether they're going to succeed or not. And I was very lucky to find two people who had the right attitude and both were with me for at least 10 years. So, yes, I was very lucky in the beginning to find the right two people. Subsequently, it's not so easy. People, no. You know, finding the right team is a problem for, I think, for any of us business owners. Especially if you're international, because now if you're here, but then you're in New York and you've got people doing things for you elsewhere, inevitably, Completely. I mean, must be tricky. 50 people now. Yes. How do you cope is, I don't want to use cope because cope sounds like it's a problem, but how do you manage them most effectively? When does it work best in terms of getting the most productive output from your team around the world? Mm. You know, it's really a matter of getting lucky, getting the right people. When I started in America 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago to the day, we opened on our own in America. I employed two people, one of whom I knew slightly, and it was the I was just so lucky because they were exactly the right people to employ. They had the right attitude and they had the experience in the industry. But I haven't been as lucky everywhere else. Mm. You know, it's it's trial and error and it's exhausting. And also younger people think about work in a different way to I did when I started. How do they think about it? Because we always, I always hear this, the, the much berated millennial, and I think it's high, <laughs> highly unfair so I'm surrounded by them. But um, <laughs> what would you say is the difference between a younger person starting, an 18, 19, 20-year-old, 25-year-old, versus the way you saw the world then? You know, when I started, you worked every hour, and it didn't matter how tired you were, how long you worked, if you had a job, you really appreciated that job and you gave it your all and you did whatever you were asked to do. Things have changed, and I'm not saying that was the right way to work either, but the things have changed now. People have a life and, you know, they want to have a life outside of, of the workplace. It's, it's just the way things have changed. And, you know, technology, of course, has turned everything on its head because in my day you had to hear about a position going. You had to look in the newspaper. Now you're bombarded with people make, giving, making you offers. Mm. It's a mindset. Things have changed. People want much more of a lifestyle and much more of a home life that, that, than they did when I started. And also in the country I started in, you gave your heart and soul and you really appreciated it when you got a job. And you, yeah. you know, it's, it's just different now. And things are more global. And in terms of when you're at your happiest when you're working, mm. you, you mentioned, you sort of alluded to the fact it's not easy managing people. It's probably one of the hardest things in, in a way to nurture someone and also to help them realise their potential and so on. When are you at your own in, in, in a piece and, and, and at your best? Is it when you're designing? Is it when you're sourcing new materials? Is it when you come up with a new flagship store in mm. uh, Pimlico Road? Or, you know, what, what is it, which bit is it that you love? It's, a, it's such a big question because I love the creative side of the industry and uh, producing something which nobody else has produced, which is glorious. Love all that bit. But I also love the business of the business and I love the marketing of the business. So I'm very lucky to love a whole lot of what I do. Um, the bits I find challenging are finding the right team members. That, you know, it really is such a challenge nowadays. It's quite emotionally draining because I put so much into it. You know, something we were talking about earlier, you put so much 
hard work into helping, supporting and growing young people. And then they feel, you know, it's just easy to move on. So that's quite challenging, quite draining. We talked about team a bit. Your role as the leader in that team. Um, yeah. How do you, again, get the best out of people? What have you discovered, whether it's someone who's 20 years old, someone who's a little bit younger than you and everything in between, when are you, what is your most effective leadership style, do you think? You know, when I started, and I started without any backing, with very little money. So when I started, I couldn't really consider other people. I didn't allow myself to because I had to get a job done at all costs. So I had, I could really not consider the needs and the home life of other people. Whereas now, I sit back and I consider other people and their lives and their home lives and their needs and their requirements. So I give myself the luxury to think about other people. And I think when you do, that's when you get really the best out of other people. Because I know, as I'm getting older, my big fear is that the company gets old with me. And I really don't want that to happen. So I embrace young people, and we've got a lot of young people in the team. And, you know, I can't do this without experience and also without the vision of younger people. I know that. I love working with young people, so that that helps too. Now that you are 26 years in, you're the founder, Mm -hmm. you've got a bunch of people, you just talked about the fact you need to get the best out of them. Have you Mm -hmm. found that your role, you're able to give yourself more time to think, more space, as it were, or are you still in the weeds? I want to know how much of a micromanager you really are, Kind of trying not to be a micromanager. I knew it. I could see it in your eyes. You couldn't say to me, I'm I'm totally float. (laughs) I float in the clouds and I have a visionary idea. It's not like that. I totally don't float, Elliot. (laughs) (laughs) But what I I have discovered is that if I leave people to get on with what they're doing, and, and mostly because I have no option, like the team in America or our our sales manager, export manager in France, I can't manage their every moment. They're generally more successful than if I'm trying to manage Mm. every little thing they're doing. So I know that I need to let people get on with it, but I promise you as a business owner starting from nothing, it is so hard to watch people making serious mistakes and just let it happen. It's really hard. But you do let it happen. I think I do now. Mm. Not Totally, I can see you don't believe me. No, Elliot, I do so. believe you. I do. I promise. <laughs> I, I, I do. I do. Totally I do. Totally ignore it, but I do try to let people learn by their own mistakes, mm. um, and and watch it happen, and then try to support them when it happens and put them back on track. Aside from that, there is obviously the role of a founder and the passion and the love, the love that you have for this child, mm. which is still your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the vision that comes with it is, I imagine, the superstructure, as it were, for all these different little things going on. And I'm thinking really about mm. your view of sustainability mm. and, and things where your business can make a proper impact by doing things the right way. Tell me mm. a little bit about why that's been important to you. Because, again, this isn't, sustainability has become very fashionable, but it, it feels like you've been doing this since the beginning. You know, sustainability is really in my heart and soul because... If you were brought up in Africa in a place like I was, people reuse things all the time. They recycled things all the time. They they used sustainable and um, recyclable. It was just in your heart and soul because why? You couldn't afford not to. I remember the first time I went to India and I saw people recycling cigarette butts 
And I thought, what the hell? Why would they possibly do that? But they had to because they couldn't afford not to. So I think that we have damaged the world to such a, the earth to such a degree because we can afford to. I think if we couldn't afford to, we wouldn't have done it in the first place. But now, because of where we are, I don't think any person or any business can afford to ignore sustainability. I think it's just a big thing which we all, we have to live by. And as a company, we do our very, very best. I think we're quite far down the track in lots of areas, but we do our very, very best to be sustainable and not to damage the earth for the next generation. Next year, in spring, we launch a totally organic collection of linen fabrics. And the reason why I say organic, it's a big deal saying it's totally organic because linen from the farm to our warehouse goes through about five different stages. And each one of those stages, for example, the growing, the spinning, the dyeing, the finishing, etc., etc., each one of those companies that does those different processes needs to have what they call a GOT certificate, G-O-T-S, so that's global organic. It's expensive to get, and because I work with small companies, very often family-owned companies, family-owned companies that employ craftspeople, genuine craftspeople, this is quite a big investment for all of them. So I've been involved in the development and the investment to achieve this organic collection, which will launch in spring. Brilliant. Spring 2020. That's it. Not far. We'll have our <laughs> final chat um, with my guest today, Bernie de la Cogna. Excellent 10 out of 10 for me. A plus player track from Melody Gardo. That's all coming up in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Mean concrete got you walking to a place you know. You gonna meet your maker when it has you know. Late night creature go a walking with a head hung low. That was Melody Gardot with She Don't Know. I've got Bernie de la Cogna just for a few more minutes and we've been talking about the trickiness of finding the right people, managing young people, the importance of inventiveness, the importance of quality, the importance of sustainability and that heritage, that South African mm-hmm. reality, the context for you is really, it sounds like it really has defined you. And when you said it's in your heart, I think your heart is also your head and I think that's a really, really good thing. Just tell me a little bit about how you want to reinvent the high street, as it were, because we're in the middle of a revolution on the high street where it is diminishing in importance, where it's really hard to make it work. And yet there you are investing a lot of money in a flagship store. Just tell me about your take on what you want to do on the high street. So in terms of the high street, I think, you know, at the moment we really are in flux. In the UK and Europe, we've got Brexit looming. Um, in America, we've got the American-China thing going on. So the whole world is is in flux and retail showrooms are all closing down. And I think, I think that the reason retail is closing down, it's technology, number one. But I also think it's the older companies who aren't prepared to move on. I think this is a good opportunity for somebody to make a statement and open a retail outlet. And I also think it's the time for our industry to be able to service consumers and not keep it so very much closed shop, keep fabrics to the professionals only. Mm. 
Mm. I think we really, really need to open it up. We're going to be forced to open it up, should I say, to the consumer because, you know, if you watch television, there are all these stories about how you can do it yourself, interior design stories. You you know, we can all do it ourselves. There's Pinterest, there's Instagram. It, people want to do it themselves. So I think it's really important to open up the industry. It feels to me like it's an end of an era, but the new era hasn't happened yet. And we're in this sort of gap. So I thought it was the right time to make a statement and open a retail outlet. If we were having this conversation in three years' time, mm-hmm. what else? I mean, it sounds like you're, I think you're right. Your take on the changing, the volatility that we're in and the unpredictability that we're in, the only way to mm. get ahead of that is to do stuff. And mm. you're doing stuff. And I think you're right. Retail is under threat. Mm. Uh, the old world of retail. In three years' time, if we were talking, what would you be looking back on and going, Elliot, that was a good decision? Well, I think, you know, just opening the retail outlets. In three years' time, I hope to be part of a platform like, shall we say, Net-A-Porter or something like that because I think it's really important to do and very few of our industry, people in our industry are doing it. I think I'd like to say, you know, I've been in the forefront of the sustainability march in our industry I believe we are now, and I hope that that was a a good decision because it's quite an expensive one, you know, carbon neutral shipping and all that sort of thing. It all costs money. So I hope that I'll be looking back on that and saying that was a good thing to do. And then in my own right, I also hope that um, we won't see the end of wildlife. I mean, you know, rhinos are going to be extinct in three years if we carry on the way we're going. Lions in 10 years and giraffe in 10 years you know, elephants in 20. Because remember, in sustainability is so important for so, so many reasons. And I hope we can help a little bit. In 30 years' time, there will be 3 billion more people on this planet. So we all have to take note. And hopefully, when we meet again, Elliot, I'll say that the little bit we've done has helped towards save our planet. It's been lovely talking to you, Bernie. Thank you for your time. Um, Just before I let you go and shoot off to invent another beautiful um, design thing, and I was just reading here, your signature Paisley is archived in the V&A. Well, that's not bad either. I'd like to be able to even put my name, just that one thing. Um, What is your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well, it's Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World, because that's honestly how I feel about the world. You know, the first time I ever listened to a trumpet was Louis Armstrong with What a Wonderful World, and I was mesmerized when I heard it. And quite honestly, have you ever looked at a photograph of him? His face just makes you want to smile. So Brilliant that would be my choice. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue. For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world That was Louis Armstrong with What a Wonderful World. The song choice of my business shape today, Bernie de la Cogna. She talked about the importance of attitude of the people that work for her and finding those people and how tough that was, but when you find them, you've got to really let them go and do their thing. She talked about loving many things in her role, the creativity and so on, but really basically the love of the love of the business, which was really important. And she talked about being thoughtful around the environment, about sustainability being important, and that importance coming from the fact that she was brought up in South Africa. All brilliant stuff. 
That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a fabulous weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazz shapers.